All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the No Country Podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackness. And Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I, I'm really pleased to say that my butt and genitals are clean. And it occurred to me again this afternoon that a lot of people around the world, and many not that far from me, can't say that. So they my can't. mood is gratitude. I think that we all need to be reminded a little bit about that. We can all get pissed off. We can all get worried. We can get scared. We can get sick, you know, but there's always something to be grateful for. And it's just kind of worth touching base with that, you know, in our hearts, you know? Absolutely. I remember when there was a movement going on in the burgeoning alt-right that posited the idea that wiping your butt was gay. And yeah. And just, <laughs> oh dear. Oh yeah. dear. <laughs> I'll say no more about that, but I just, oh. you know, felt sorry for whoever these guys' girlfriends were, as if they had girlfriends. I think I'm being a little bit generous. To oh, I think that. so. <laughs> I yeah. think so. That that's uh, that's what we call a worry. You know, yeah. that's a real <laughs> social concern. And there are people who struggle so hard to, um, you know, to, to try to clean themselves and to keep them, keep some dignity. Some humanity is a lot easier to maintain if you don't smell like rotten meat and wilted cabbage or, you know, dog crap, you know? Mm, absolutely. It just, helps. It just helps. Absolutely. I, uh, before we get into the show, I wanted to thank our patron Ninja Cat for sending a really cool article my way about Tezcatli Poca, whom we talked about last time. It's got mm. a lot of Mesoamerican history in it and the constant conflict between Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatli Poca. So shout out to Ninja Cat. Thank you very much. And also thank you for being a patron. So um, Chris, did you want to do any housekeeping today? Is there anything we need to talk about before we dive in? Yeah, well, I'll just remind everyone as always that you have been assigned... Uh, you've been given a choice, two words out of five, and you've just heard them. You haven't heard them before. We also do that in, in the part two behind the paywall segments for people who haven't joined us yet across the, the border. Um, and they get a little bit, uh, well, a little bit squirrelier in part two. And we are continuing the experiment with David's mind with an imaginative challenge that he has not heard yet. And uh, I have to say, there's a lot of good reason to check out this one because I have tailored it to him and it's going to really be a good challenge. So that's all the more reason to join us across the board. One other thing that we, uh, we're all over the place as listeners know, but we do, uh, you know, we keep track of things. And uh, we had a competition uh, back when we were talking about the tarot. And I think that was a very interesting segment of the total series. And I think we're on, I don't know, what is this, episode 58 now? So we've, this, we've done some stuff. Yeah, what this is, is it? 58. Yeah, it's 58. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Well, we wanted to follow up on that because we did get some good response. And I'm pleased to report we do have a decisive winner, but I'm not going to announce that person's name and give full recognition because they have not yet jumped over the paywall. But I did think this needed to be uh, recognized. 
I think it's a cool choice and we will honor the reward, the choice of the two books that we mentioned. And the new tarot card idea is the masked singer. Like I think the show. People, yeah. And uh, I think, I mean, it's a cool idea because it is a great sacred, magical, influenced mm -hmm. idea that has kind of been corrupted or at least co-opted by a semi-ridiculous show. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, that kind of is in keeping, I think, with this new pop culture addition to the major arcana of, of the tarot. So the key point is, is that David and I uh, do live up to our words about things, and we're going to launch our book club within the next two weeks. Uh, I'm up first with a book by Lawrence Weschler about the California artist Robert Irwin called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. Very, very interesting book. Whether you know that artist or not, Weschler's prose is about as lovely and clear as it gets. So that's my housekeeping. Cool. Well, over here, we had a tornado yesterday. Very rare to have tornadoes in October, but we had one. When I woke up yesterday, there was nothing on the forecast, but I woke up with an intense sense of anxiety. I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong, but I felt compelled to do OCD rituals to of protection. Sure. And at about 4 p.m., Rios and I were eating dinner and she glanced at her phone and said, huh, that's interesting. We're under a tornado watch until 10 p.m. It's a six-hour window. It was a storm front that went from Tulsa, which is northeast Oklahoma, all the way down to Wichita Falls, which is actually in northern Texas. So this big, long storm front that had the possibility of creating tornadoes. And I saw that and I thought to myself, well, those are good odds. It's, you know, it's an area of about three and a half million people. What are the odds that the tornado is going to hit Norman, Oklahoma? I should have touched wood because the mm. tornado hit Anadarko, which is about 65 miles southwest of where I live. Then it hit Chickasha, which is about 45 miles southwest of where I live. It's moving east-northeast very gradually. The newscaster says... It could go either way. It could go straight east or it could turn up. We really don't know. Well, which way do you think it went? Of course, it went due north and then it hit Blanchard, which is 15 miles away from me, southwest. And the tornado touched down about two miles south of where I live, moved for about a mile, didn't do any serious damage that I could tell besides the enormous hailstorm that came along with it and busted out my rear window and my front window in my brand new car. Of course, it's always the brand new car. Oh, the, yeah. The, ba the battle axe is fine. It's just, you know, not a mark. Well, I say that one taillight got busted out on the, on the other car, but the, the white car is just, it's not totaled because it's going, the, the blue book value of it is going to be higher than whatever it costs to fix it. Um, but we've just had such bizarre weather these past two Octobers. Last October, it was the ice storm that knocked out my power for nine days. I remember that. that. Yeah, people who've been listening guys, to the show. But there you actually had to leave. You were in a motel or something, right? Yeah. 
Amping, yeah. and, our, and, and our power did get cut last night and came back on at about 9 a.m. this morning. But, uh, you know, there is a unique fear to being in a little house. I live in a very small, I live in an 850 square foot house, which is the size of most people's apartments. In a little bathroom with a bunch of towels and blankets on the floor. And I put my, I put my son on his little changing table that we had set on the floor. And of course, through the whole thing, he's completely fine. He's just looking around, smiling. Uh, the big noises seem to startle him, but he's not a super skittish child yet. He hasn't gone through that phase. So he mostly just kind of took the whole thing in stride. But to know that there's a tornado close and to know what you're listening for, which is the sound of a freight train, and to have that hail. Be the hail. That alone is a heavy deal. It'd be very reminiscent of a freight train. And it was so bizarre to hear hail pelt the west side of the house, the east side of the house, the north side of the house, the south. You know, it's like this almost swirling, like hail coming mm -hmm. from different directions. And, um, it's quite an experience. Uh, growing up in Oklahoma, I've been in many tornadoes before, but always, always, always with a shelter. So since I've moved back and now I live in a place that doesn't have a shelter, and unfortunately all shelters right now are closed due to COVID-19, uh, oh, it's, right. it's, right. it's frightening. You know, it's, it's very, it's very frightening to just be kind of at the mercy of this big, you know, storm cloud. So I, I'm still a little, um, Shell shocked is the wrong word, but I feel like I'm still amped on adrenaline. After the storm passed, I went to my bed and I completely passed out for like the mm -hmm. entire night. All three of us, we were just out. And when I woke up, you know, of course, Rios was late for work and all this kind of stuff. But, but yeah, I felt it vibrating throughout the day. Just a very alarming. Situation. How much of, of the, um, well, the traumatic anxiety uh, this time relates to, well, you've, you've got a young baby. And also, as you said, this is unseasonal. How much of that is part of the deal? Yeah, the unseasonable aspect of it has been concerning me uh, since I moved here and since that ice storm happened. Um, because I believe in uh, a personification of the weather. I think that weather has a T loss and a, a kind of consciousness in its own way mm -hmm. it's very bizarre to me for for weather to seemingly defy its normal patterns to come to where i live right and start to to mess with everything around there um secondly the the kid angle is really frightening i had talked to a friend of mine who lives about two miles down the road and asked him if he had a shelter which he does he has a cellar that you can go into he said, you can come over if you want to. He said, but it's very, very small. And he lives with his two children, his wife and his mother. So he says, we're all going to be packed in there. But next time that happens, I believe I'm going to take him up on the offer. If only to just drop the baby off uh, with him in the cellar. And then I, I'm more than happy to go hang out in the bathroom until the storm passes. That's totally fine. But knowing that Gus would be safe underground, I think would have lowered that anxiety, which was, a, you know, 158% yesterday down to a, a cool hundred, you know? Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that sounds like a good plan. 
and I think you do need plans, you know. Um, I mean, it's um, when I lived in the bush in Australia, which was beautiful because of all the eucalypts. Um, it was, you know, about as great a fire risk as possible. I mean, mm-hmm. when, when fires would roar through, it would melt fire trucks, you know, and people would say, well, you know, if you live on the land, you have to have a plan, mm-hmm. which sounds good. If, but if you're a husband and wife and, or, you know, and some of our neighbors had kids, you know, it, it, you really need either an evacuation plan or a shelter plan because you're not going to be able to really defend against, you know, fires, floods, earthquakes, or tornadoes. It's just, you know. They just happen. They just happen. And you look at the statistics of how many people die in a tornado every year, and it's in the double digits. It's it's almost nothing. Mm -hmm. So there's this rational part of your brain that's thinking, don't worry. Even if things get damaged, even if you maybe get injured, you'll all likely be okay. Likely. But it's not a non-zero chance. And when the, when the sound effects and the special effects are going off, when it's strobing outside because of how much lightning there is and hail's coming down and the sound is, is hitting you, it's really hard to maintain that rational focus, which yeah. I'm, not, I'm not great at maintaining that in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> but add in, add in some scary sound effects and you've got me in full on like, okay, God, let's have a chat here for a second. Uh, I would like to see everybody out of this in one piece. Please and thank you. Amen. And uh, and then, yeah, so there are no atheists in a foxhole. No, and, there are. Uh, or in a tornado. But uh, I'm not even an atheist, but, uh, you well, know. You're certainly not. But you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. Well, I'm glad you guys are okay. Mm -hmm. I think your plan about going to someone with a shelter is a good idea. Uh, That's, that's a very sound idea. Uh, And kind of what a foxhole, you know, you need a foxhole. It's kind of where it's at. Yeah. You actually need a foxhole to be an atheist inside of first. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, no, that's pretty much what I've got for today. I did want to follow up on what you were saying by the way about the split between the two episodes Mm -hmm. Uh, so chris and i have talked a lot about what these two different episodes are going to look like and the first one is going to be much more free form chatty uh we're still going to bring a lot of effort to it and attempt to address these issues with a suitable amount of gravity depending on the subject but in the patreon episodes what we're going to do is actually bring a bit of reading to the table and have it, the conversation be structured around excerpts from things that we're reading and working on and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a much more, much more academic in the sense of having notes and references and things like that um, versus this where uh, there's that great meme that says, uh, what's your source? And the guy answers, it came to me in a dream. Uh, that's the first part here. Our sources come from our hearts and the spirits. And uh, the second part comes from books, which are their own yeah. kind of spirits. Well said, well said. And I think people can get with that. I think that's a good, a good way to break it down. And we'll continue to try to you know, reinforce what our plans are because, uh, well, we're proud people. And we want to actually <laughs> demonstrate that we do have some plans 
but we're also freeform improv, you know, improvisationalists as well. So we're trying to sort of do things on both levels. Yeah. So we absolutely. have two segments. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But uh, Chris, on that note, what did you want to talk about today? Okay. Well, in the back of my mind was following up uh, our last episode where we talked about uh, a movement, well, a proposition in California to get school children praying to Aztec gods. And that may be a little bit sensationalized, but nevertheless, it's caused some interest. And it's also, uh, we're recording on Monday, Indigenous Peoples Day, and there is considerable controversy about that relative to say, particularly Columbus Day, which it used to be. But my, as things happen in our synchronicity universe, I was uh, taking a break yesterday and I was out on a patio uh, just having a, a bit of refreshment myself. And I, I was listening to this uh, fairly earnest group of, uh, well, I think we can call them uh, performance woke people working hard to demonstrate some contemporary liberal progressive values. And it came around to the discussion of non-binary people. And I have some issues with that, not be, because I think that that is unfortunate that the idea of binaries and binary oppositions is has now been seconded and completely delimited to sexuality and gender when it is such a giant idea. Uh, I think it's also bizarre that we talk about that in an era dominated by the binary of zero and one. You know, we're all living that. But there are an awful lot of binaries that we're tremendously supportive of. And I can think of, of you know, one easily comes to mind, life versus death, you know, mm-hmm. kind of all down with that one. So I, I tuned into that. But out of this group discussion came a phrase, which is getting a lot of traction today, of two-spirit. And it was credited to Native American culture. And my ears pricked up. Uh, I majored in Native American studies in college. I I take the study of that very, very seriously. Um, But I noticed that two-spirit in this sense was was being co-opted from Native American culture because we have a romantic very naive and uneducated idea of Native American cultures. They're often phrased as these beautifully benign environmentalists who never had any struggles, never had any uh, violence, you know, pre-European contact, which is simply not true. The other thing is most of our listeners will know the two-spirit idea, in this case, male and female, Yes, it is. It, there is a Native American cultural idea about that, but you can find that in every culture around the world. And I mean, very simply, Carl Jung gave us a very clear look at that with anima and animus. I mean, it's not an idea that is limited to any one culture. So I did get a little critical just, you know, hearing this discussion, which I thought was really simplistic. And, and touched on, on some really critical issues. So just for review, 
needing to put this universal, human universal idea into one framework, Native American culture, because that is perceived to have some humanist prestige, which I think maybe it does and maybe it doesn't, no more than, than many cultures. But then I started to think, you know, what gets me about this idea, and maybe you feel this way too, and I think some of our listeners do, when, when I hear the word spirit and spirits and spiritual, I get a little bit edgy because it seems to me that those terms, that field of spirit is used purely for convenience. There's a very murky metaphysics behind it. It's not something that is given respect. It is not something is seen as being what indigenous people around the world do see it as something bigger. Now it's pulled out when people want to pull it out. And this is precisely what one of our arch villains or at least uh, antagonist Richard Dawkins complains about the murky metaphysics yeah. of so-called sensitive liberalish people. And I think there really is, oh my, there's some lightning going on. Wow. Huh. Okay. Um, but you know what I mean? It's kind of, mm-hmm. it's completely at odds with the idea of, of the spirit world being right. something that is bigger by definition right. and something that we can be, we should be a little bit afraid of, whether it's tornadoes or lightning or some malevolent sense of, of place. You know, yeah. the spirits are things that we, we try to be on good terms with. We don't just pull them out when we want it to. So I thought that might be a starting point just uh, to pitch back to you um, and then to maybe take that forward into a discussion about uh, Indigenous People Day, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. That seems like a good starting point to me. I really like the term actually of murky metaphysics, because I think that if I had one complaint about the way people talk about almost anything these days, it is in the register of a very murky metaphysics. It's probably the most pernicious problem that we have in discussions in general. You don't ever really know what people believe. And I tend to know when people believe what they believe because their narratives occasionally don't line up with whatever is currently being broadcast to them via social media and the major news Mm -hmm. networks. The second thing is that Two-Spirit was a term that was coined in 1990 in Winnipeg at a gathering of lesbian and gay Native Americans. Not to say that the concept doesn't have a historical precedent because- No, that's an important distinction. Yes, there is a precedent, but there's also this media-friendly phrase that has popped up. Right, right, right. So so basically it's this idea that- uh, you have two different spirits inside of you that are apparently of different genders um, and that you might feel one way one day and one day the next day, uh, depending on the mood or the phase of the moon or what have you. And the problem that I would have with that is that I think that it fundamentally misunderstands what, as you said, what a spirit actually is. I always go back to 
the line from Connor Habib that I love so much, which is that our heads are meeting places for spirits and our thoughts are their conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, it's working from a bad metaphysics because where I'm coming from, there is a, a, such a thing as spirits that exist. Um, and those spirits inhabit everything from, as you said, places, not every place, but some places, uh, people, not every person, but most people, animals, plants, on and on and on and on and on. Um, so like you said, this co-opting of it seems to be touching on this kind of turquoise bead jewelry thing that business savvy Native Americans will sell to white people to get them to think that they're a bit more in touch with the earth than they really yeah. might be, yeah. you know, where, and this has been one of my issues, I think, with um, sort of with this, this line of thinking in academia and in the broader culture at large. And my, 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 my question is this, it's, you know, number one, do you think that spirits exist or not? Because if you don't, then you're appropriating in kind of a heinous way. Right. Second, secondly, are Native Americans people? Are they human beings? Uh, are Black people people, human beings? Uh, because if so, then that means largely outside of cultural differences, they're the same as you and me, right? And they aren't able to be distilled down to a little tchotchke that you can buy at a store and pull out whenever you want to make some sort of milk toast point about whatever your current issue is. So the whole thing is fraught from top to bottom. And uh, I remember there's a very, there's a very prominent Native American author uh, who's had a lot of success lately. And he told me once while we were playing pool that when he moved to the place that he lives in now, which is a very blue city, he said he almost preferred the Texas towns that he grew up in because when he moved to a blue state, he started feeling like he was in a zoo and that people were looking at him as this strange artifact, right? But yeah, he, he, he seemed to, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm being careful because I definitely don't want to speak for him or say that what I'm saying or what you're saying is what he's saying at all. Uh, but that always stuck with me. And it actually helped to inform how I look at a lot of social justice politics, right? Which is like, which, how much space do they have for an individual of any race or sexual orientation to be a human being within their paradigm, within their framework, right? And, and an individual as opposed to some sort of group representative or un, you no, know, elected no. poli- you know, politician yeah. figure. I mean, th- that's the condescension. That's the real right. problem of group politics and identity politics is that it completely limits someone to not just some sort of symbolic reference point and not something archetypal. That's because that's not where most of us want to be on any level at any given time. It, it really says cartoon caricature and I think is profoundly offensive, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And because I think that when it comes to things like appropriation, I do think that you can learn from and incorporate the wisdom of different cultures into your worldview, your practice, things like that. 
Um, but there's a funny, and to me, it's not murky at all. It's a very clear line, but there is, there's a very, there's a, a kind of aqueous line between on the one hand, treating these cultures as uh, rich, deep, interesting reservoirs from which you can occasionally dip your cup, maybe to fit in a puzzle piece that's been missing to mix metaphors. Uh, and all, and then treating them as these like alien Jesus beings that, mm. <laughs> that have some kind of special thing. And it, it just brings to mind all the worst aspects of religion of, you know, saying like, well, this thing that we're talking about now is true because this particular group says it. And this is the priest caste that, you know, after we've got done exterminating 90% of their people, we determined that the surviving 10% can be this, you know, kind of, uh, holy relic thing it's it's all it's all very gross and i but to get back to the original point is that i don't think that the idea of two-spirit really uh has any bearing on what i see on twitter <laughs> or facebook right mm -hmm. when you're when when people by the people who are who are trying to to uh i think co-opt that um which i'm not really sure how pervasive that is or not but i totally get what you're what you're saying. And I agree with you as well. So, I, you know, it, it's something that's getting traction, but it's part, I think it's emblematic of a larger trend of, of trying to uh, co-opt in a rhetorical sense and, and at a very low level of rhetorical efficiency and capability uh, to make an extremely transparent point that in a sense uh, may not need to be made. I mean, I think if people need to be told that cultures all around the world have long thought that we have many different aspects to our being, then we would have never had any attempt at magic, religion, and the sciences in the sense of psychology, because there would have been nothing to explain. It would have been all transparent and easy, and it's not. And uh, so part of it, I think, is just social laziness. I think it is trying to score points in a really stupid uh, way. And I think it finally denigrates um, peoples all around the world, but whole topics and whole approaches to life. And I think it does open the door to some of the very rigid materialist science people of our time, Dawkins being one, to kind of dismiss a whole possible stream of other thought. And mm -hmm. so I feel like it misrepresents a lot of my thinking when I hear that. And I, you know, I didn't go over to those people and, and say, listen, you stupid people, you're just talking through your butts. I didn't mm -hmm. do that. I just, you know, walked on. But I did think that. Yeah, absolutely. It brings to mind, uh, you know, people who grow up in say a Southern Baptist paradigm, discovering something like Buddhism and, you know, five years later they have a shaved head and they're wearing the orange robe and it's like, okay, so you have the dress, you have the costume, you have the garb, you have all the terms down, you have, you know, all this idea, but there's, but have you really kind of shifted your mind to the way a person who grew up in Tibet would think about their relationship, which by the way is a very animistic in its own way. Uh, have you have you done the work to kind of incorporate those things into your being, or is this a 
facade that you're adopting onto a pre-existing set of, you know, Judeo-Christian principles that you're, you know, using for something like, I don't know, self-improvement or, uh, you know, what have you. I don't know. I, I get really skittish when I see these kind of terms being used for the silly arguments that we're having today, which, as I've told you before, I just completely at this point reject the premise of. Like, I just don't want to, to me, it's kind of like, you know what, whatever, right? It's, it's just, it's, it's not important. But co-opting things is important. Right. Yeah. Well, that's I, that's exactly my my point of view, and I, that's why I, I wanted to do uh, to start things off on that basis because I think those are two very different things. Yeah. And unfortunately, the co-opting practice um, is just extremely uh, extremely common. You know, we have that sort of notion of. Well, you know, you've told me this the meme about you know who are your sources, you know, and uh, it's often you know. A lot of people just are not really on that level to be able to have those kinds of discussions. And I think you and I are both very proud that the people listening to us are. And I think it's a reminder to all of us to try to steer clear of, of the immediate social media froth and nonsense and focus on the big issues and then really bring some attention and some intellect and maybe some actual, you know, effort. Of, of reading and following up on things to see what arguments we do want to make. What, what fights do we think are really important, you know? And I think that that's what is not happening today is a lot of petty bickering, mm-hmm. you know, and we really need, and we're, we've unfortunately closed down a lot of channels of, of academic and artistic discourse, uh, which I think is very unfortunate, but Part of our project with this series is to uh, to reinvigorate that and to remind people that it's okay to jump up a notch in terms of really key cultural issues, you know, and this is one of them. Yeah, I think that if there was a key skill that you needed uh, up to a certain point, it was learning a trade, which I think is still obviously valuable, but I think was maybe more valuable uh, before we were in the job market that we're in today. Um, Is there a job market? (laughs) No. Uh, Then I think we moved into this, um, this idea that the major skill would be to discern fact from fiction, truth from falsehood. But I think that that's been the wrong way of looking at it. I think we exist right now in an era of fact checkers and what's your source and, and all of that's important to an extent. But I think instead of truth versus fiction, I think the important distinction is signal versus noise. And I don't think that whether something's true or not has any bearing on whether it's signal or noise. So being able to discern those things, I think is really important. So what's the signal that we're talking about here, right? The signal is not whether or not something like Two-Spirit really exists or whether it's something that was just invented by crazy gay academics in the early 90s, or you know whether it has any historical backing, that's all conversations that you can have and that's fun. But to me, that's all noise, that's all background noise. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the way in which that tool is being used currently and to what end it's trying to, it's trying to get to, right? And I think that to go up a macro level, you know, it's, it's all part of the constant, um, 
butterfly pin, I keep using this phrase every episode, but the butterfly pinning of different identities onto it. And if you have an identity that needs to be pinned, but is slightly more complex than the, you know, the ready-made identities that the neoliberal regime has provided for you, well, you can always pick two now. You can pick two. So you can be, you know, this non-binary type thing, right? Whereas what if you just didn't have any of those at all? Right? What if your identity was something more fluid that moved? The, you wouldn't need a term like this. So I think what I'm getting from, from what you're saying and what I think is so, 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 so important is this idea that we have to learn how to be, be like, you know, be more like water, right? You know, uh, Bruce Lee style, you know, <laughs> be, be like water. But um so National Indigenous Peoples Day is today. Seems kind of strange that they only get a day. We have a whole Black History Month. Where's, where's their month? Well, you see, that's instantly where this gets to in very practical and uh, at least sociopolitical, if not political terms. It, it sounds a lot to me like pandering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think pandering is what a lot of this debate is about that you and I are having right now. I think it's a rejection of pandering and a, and a kind of, you know, basic belief. It's like the spirit world that mm-hmm. if you really believe in that, then you have a, at least a relationship to that. Maybe you don't understand the metaphysics. Maybe you don't have the beautiful psychic map and the hierarchies of angels that certain beliefs have. And it's certainly not uh, just Christianity. I mean, Buddhism and Hinduism have enormous higher, but they've had some time to form. Maybe you, maybe you as an individual don't have that, but you still have a psychic reference point of saying the tornado is bigger than I am. The mm-hmm. spirit world is bigger than I am. I'm not going to, you know, if I call down the spirits, if I reach for the spirits, I'm going to do so humbly, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not going to do so for petty reasons, you know, mm-hmm. like winning a little argument at a coffee shop. So, I, but I think there is an issue with uh, trying to turn uh, a date from Columbus Day, which has historical social construct things, to Indigenous Peoples Day. I mean, that was that was my that I I agree with you 100 percent. And I think we're also um, using that term in a very bizarre way. I mean, think about it. That's a lot of different kinds of peoples, plural, that we're now given this label to. Uh, We also are immediately in conflict with our number one human geography paradigm of everyone coming from a single branch out of Africa. That's the only place in our current science for those people who are following that science. Everyone came from there. Everyone came from, until we throw out that paradigm, the term indigenous, which I use and I know you use, there's a conflict. I at least know there's a conflict when I use that term. And I try to use that term very respectfully. Uh, And I, I think about the people I've lived with in Fiji, Vanuatu, New Guinea, and, and certainly the Solomon Islands, where I'm, uh, I'm still a citizen. Um, but then I think about how this is 
presented. And I, I don't know if you, I mean, I looked at some of the news uh, images of the celebration today. And I think there are some well-intentioned people behind this, as in well-intentioned white liberals. Uh, but I still think they're greatly caricaturing what they're seeking to praise and, and respect. They're just not doing it because it's a costume party. It's, right. it's at best a folkloric, folk tale, folk culture driven celebration. And I do think a lot of people mean well. And I do think they're trying to provide some education. But they do that entirely within a frame that is incredibly idealistic, romanticized, museumized, mm -hmm. and frankly, not at all holistic or true to, to history, really, you know? It's right. so selective and so rhetorically driven. I think it undermines their very uh, well-intentioned purposes. What do you think of that? I think that it is correct. And I think that the, what would have to be looked at very carefully would be, I guess, who is performing these, these actions, number one. So these things always get fraught because I'm sure that you'll find uh, that most of the people who participate in these ceremonies are ones that are doing it because they love it, because they want to express their culture. Um, and that's all well and good. That's also not who we're talking about. Uh, we, the issue becomes, again, this constant state that we live in right now of turning people into a product that can be easily recognized and easily sold. And it's really difficult to do. The way that a neoliberal regime does that is by having you express yourself and express your culture to the wider world. Do it so that we can package it, so that we can make a Google homepage image of it, right? So that we can wear it like a little badge that we got for that day. And that's where the real problem of it comes in. But I'm of two minds about it not two spirits, but two minds about it because <laughs> I, say. because, well, the sticking point for me is that first thing that I mentioned. And that is that, what do you think, what would you say would be a desirable alternative for say a culture to express itself on the national stage while still somehow threading that needle of not becoming a sort of marketable neoliberal subject at the same time. Okay, I have a couple of answers to that. Um, you probably don't remember, but have, have seen since, or certainly will understand that there was in the 1970s, a very uh, well-known PSA commercial about the environment of a Native American chieftain crying, a tear. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Have you seen that? It's, it's something that, that you can Google on. It's, it's very well known. At about that same time, an excerpt from a speech given by Chief Seattle became very, very widespread. It's just it's not just limited to the city of Seattle. It became something that was everywhere. And 
That's important. It's a beautiful piece of oratory. But guess what? Oratory as a, as a form, a literary form, an oral tradition form, a great art and communications form is widespread across Native American peoples. It was virtually a, a key prerequisite skill for leadership. Now I can name 50, 50 major figures from but one decade of the 19th century. One, I can do that easily. Now, yes, I have studied this, but these, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Mm -hmm. um, we can look at the, the beautiful work of Black Elk Speaks, which John Nehart uh, is the writer, the author, but he speaking to a great Ogala Sioux shaman figure. There is an enormous wealth of material mm -hmm. which is available today and has been made available by many people. So we don't have to limit our knowledge and ideas about things to a meme about Chief Seattle. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. It's also been heavily co-opted. Uh, it's often abbreviated, which you'd never do to, mm -hmm. you know, Chief, Chief Seattle. Are you kidding? I mean, it's not that long. You know, don't excerpt it, you know. Right. <laughs> Check out the whole thing. So holism. Going a little bit, if you really are serious about celebrating a complex range of peoples who had constant warfare and cooperative arrangements with each other, you know, very complicated. You know, in my part of the country, everyone enshrines the Navajo people. Uh, they do live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. They're seen as these great enlightened people, great artifacts, great culture, a very, a very strong living culture today. They were heavily affected by COVID. A lot of people don't know that they made an absolute practice of enslaving the Paiute peoples mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who I did my residency with. They're based in Pyramid Lake up north, but they extend down to where I live now. The southern branch is called the Moapa people. Uh, people don't know that the Navajos enslaved Paiute people, used young girls for prostitution purposes to the point where some rogue Mormon vigilante forces felt a moral obligation to rescue the Paiutes, mm -hmm. particularly the young women. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at a holistic approach to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that... that Native Americans were all just these sacred technicians who were looking after the environment and who were so peaceful and friendly and so moral, and then were completely uh, corrupted and slaughtered by white settlers. Look, there's, it's more complicated than that, you know? And if we're going to start revising any aspect of history, you and I have spoken about this before, a, we need to be able to remember what we personally ate for dinner two nights ago. Yeah. <laughs> and we need to do a little bit more reading, exploring, and guess what? Maybe talking to some living people today. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm looking forward to, when, whenever I come visit you in Oklahoma, 
I want to go to the Cherokee Cultural Center. I mean, you live in, an, in a very important state for Native American culture. Yeah, I do. Not that, the, not that most states aren't, but I live in a major area, and mm-hmm. so do you. And I think if people want to talk about this, pick up some books, get some really good background, and talk to some living people today. Because yeah. the, the number one thing about it, which I took away from looking at these media pictures, it just looks like it, it looks like it's a museumized culture. And this is exactly mm-hmm. what the complaint is. Mm-hmm. If you go around the corner to Death Valley and talk to Western Shoshone people who are a smaller group now and they don't have the gambling concessions that the Moapa people have near me. What they hate is thinking, well, we're, we live in a history book. Mm-hmm. No, we don't. Right, right. We proudly live in, an, in, a, in, a, in a desert region on the eastern rain shadow side of the Sierras where our people have for a long time. You know, right. so right. that's yes. a long way of coming around to that. But I think there are a few issues for you to pull on. Absolutely. The first one, and I love that you said this. And I will admit that this didn't occur to me, but I think you said it beautifully, is the way to avoid tokenizing. And Good word. That's the word. That is the word. Is to simply have more of it. Mm -hmm. Just have more. Don't limit it to a day. If you live on this land and you believe, as I do, that spirits of place are very much wrapped up with the ancestors who live in this place, you are doing yourself a disservice by limiting your understanding of these people and their history to just one day or just one museum display or, you know, uh, just one little bit of their kind of obscure history that you want to co-opt and bring into 2021 so that you can win a stupid Twitter argument. Mm. The second thing, one of my favorite phrases uh, comes from Donna Haraway from her book, Staying with the Trouble. And the mm-hmm. phrase is, stay with the trouble. Yeah, you, yeah. You cannot, what Haraway is getting at in her book, because the subtitle of it is Living in the Cthulhu Scene. Cthulhu, like the Lovecraftian beast, right? right? <laughs> um, she essentially, throughout the book, is making, broadly speaking, this point that life, human society, plant society, animal society, the ecosystem that we live in is all a network of what she calls rhizomatic connections, right? Pushes and pulls of energy forces. And on occasion, the the waters get a little troubled. And what you don't want to do is to shy away from that trouble. You don't want to try to explain it away or whitewash it or create this kind of perfect narrative where it's black and white hero villain man like you actually don't want binaries in this what she suggests is that you stay with the trouble and i think that that particular phrase has served me so well since i first heard it about four or five years ago when i i didn't read it i listened to the audio book which if you ask some people it counts as reading i don't think it does but i listened to it and it completely blew my head open, this concept of staying with the trouble. I mean, you just engage with things because what you're doing then 
is something very respectful to what you're engaging with. You're giving it agency. I say it because I'm including plants and animals in this, right? Not, mm-hmm. you know, not calling people it. But by giving agency to whatever you're, you're with, you're more able to have a dynamic relationship to the subject. And that dynamic relationship, the oscillation that we talk about when it comes to the ghost radio signal, uh, it makes life more rich. You're more in touch with how life actually works. You're better able, I think, to distinguish the signal from the noise, right? So stay with the trouble. And, you know, signal and noise is an oscillating process. And you only can keep with that oscillation if you're willing to stay with the trouble. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really important. Um, One of the, uh, when I started uh, my, my program in Native American studies at an Ivy League school founded to teach Indians then, Native Americans now, one of the things I really liked was that uh, one of my professors who was uh, definitely Native American, uh, he and his wife kicked off the program with introducing uh, the, a couple of the calendars, the idea of calendars used by tribal groups, which I thought was interesting, and cuisine, food, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how that tied in with seasons. But then he, his thing, which was really, really cool, and it's so obvious when you think about it. If you read the history, the political social history of any kind of European segment, what you read is disputes about power, struggles mm-hmm. for leadership, we all think, well, how, I mean, how, what, what is the thinking about the, the descent of power within a tribal group? Do we know? You know, were there no disputes? Was leadership never challenged? Is it genetic? Is it, you know, no one? Well, guess what? <laughs> they have as interesting struggles for power as any people's going. Mm-hmm. There are a whole bunch of things going on. And again, using this word, you know, this term of indigenous people, I mean, we're talking about a lot of land mass, a lot of very, very different people, different languages, all sorts of complexity. Mm -hmm. And that just gets packed down to this little tiny, nice thing that then we think we understand. And my complaint with it, finally is not just that it is co-opted for very petty rhetorical socio-political issues of the day. That is obvious, certainly obvious to our listeners. My complaint is that it is not good teaching strategy. Mm-hmm. It does not provoke, incite, encourage people to find out more, mm-hmm. you know, and there is so much more. I mean, how really... Think about bows and arrows. I mean, those are worldwide ideas, worldwide ideas. I was fascinated to know how some Native American technologies that way were actually very different than people in Oceania, the Solomon Islanders, or the New Guinea mm-hmm. people, you know? Because I thought, well, there's just a bow and arrow, you know? You, how much can you do with that? 
You know, it's partially a musical instrument, but it's, it's got certain principles. So therefore, the, you know, different wood. Hey, different wood, different treatment. What are the arrowheads made out of? Different. How many people were involved in them? So, I mean, that's just one aspect that we could get really, really interested in. Um, I, I met this guy. He was just wonderful to go on a walk with. He made arrowheads. Mm -hmm. He was back with that. I mean, he studied how to do that. But I looked at that and I thought, are you kidding me? You know, he made this beautiful obsidian arrowhead while we were walking. You know, mm -hmm. I'm trying to sort of like, you know, make sure I don't, you know, fall over and rough terrain. And he's doing something like that. If we're going to have this day of, of support and celebration, I want it to lead to more engagement, to more query, to more learning, and to have people feel like they can participate. Mm -hmm. Not that the door is closed because, well, you're not Native American. Well, mm. so what do I do? You know, and how does it relate? I mean, we've got Mesoamerican cultures that are so different again, extending down to South America, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to see more encouragement, more yeah. people getting into it, not closed out. Well, I think that that is a beautiful place to stop this first segment. There are a couple of things that I wanted to note before we went. Uh, the first one is that I really liked what you said almost in passing about food being a way of structuring time mm -hmm. because I've been thinking a lot lately about how we structure time in 2021 and how fragmented that is and how that might be leading us to be less able to separate things like signal from noise, right? Because we talk about the disappearance of initiation rituals. We talk about the disappearance of rituals in general, even if that ritual is going to church every Sunday and maybe Wednesday in the middle of the week, right? So the idea of food that's in season being a way of structuring the time that you're in, I find very, very interesting. So maybe we can follow up on that a bit next time. I think we do. I, I'm glad that you're interested because I think that's a really key uh, point of access and entry. And it really does. It's, it's part of this mindset difference. If we're going to use the term indigenous people versus Europeans or Western technologized people, it's one of the key points of difference. Yeah. And there was more congruence uh, earlier in, time, in the 19th century. There was a lot more. Now we expect everything to be in the supermarket whenever we want it, yeah. you know, and we're willing to put up with a lot of weird stuff in terms of treatment. I mean, I'm really scared about some of them. And I go to a really good supermarket too, but mm -hmm. sometimes I think, wait a minute. And have you noticed just incidentally, I don't know if you drink milk, milk, but I'm really concerned about how long milk stays fresh. I, I want to I want to get a connection because I'm in the place for it. I want to get a connection to a raw milk provider. Mm -hmm. I know that raw milk became a funny meme, especially after that, whose name is slipping my mind because he's completely insignificant in the history of the world. But some Republican senator... Uh, was going to prove how safe raw milk was and he drank it and he got sick, right? Which is a thing that happens uh, for sure. 
but I, uh, I agree with you. I drink milk, milk. It's fair life. It's uh, ultra pasteurized. And the word on the gallon jug that concerns me is, is filtered. What? Fil filtered of what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, how's um, it what's, what's being filtered out? Right. Uh, I think I want all that. I think that's the good stuff. I want the milk, basically. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely <laughs> what we're talking about. Another thing that I thought would be a fun thing to end on, and this is apropos of nothing, this doesn't have anything to do with anything that we talked about, but you mentioned New Guinea, and this reminded me of a story I read two days ago about a, a crew of men on a boat whose navigation systems failed them. They ended up being at sea for 29 days until they eventually landed in New Britain, right, in, in Papua New Guinea. Right. And they're out there, they're running out of food, they're dealing with the wind chill, all the, 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 the sea, um, you know, all the kind of hallucinations and weird things that happened. But when they got to New Britain and they were interviewed by a news crew from Australia, they asked one of the sailors what his experience was like. What was it like to be lost at sea for 29 days? Uh, and his response I thought was amazing. He was like, you know, it was kind of nice to be away from it all for a little bit. <laughs> well, I think that's, that is beautiful. And for people, just, just to be clear, New Britain is the largest island off the coast of the island of New Guinea. New Guinea is the second largest island in the world after Greenland. New Britain is the, is the biggest island. New Ireland to the West is the second. And, uh, New Britain was, it, it, well, it's still home to the, the Tolai people who were very, very ferocious and fierce and have a magical culture of magic societies, secret, see, they've got secret societies that, that the Freemasons and all the, you know, no, nah, we we're not even close to that. They're just so into it. And it's like a lot of Native American culture. So we could look at, how about two things that we come back to and maybe a North American frame, keeping it on that for next week's part one, where we look at some recipes, some, uh, and how that ties in with seasonality and that structuring of time. Because I think that's a vital, vital thing to understand because people's sense of time is one of the most, important things. It's tied in with their language. I think some people know uh, some of the work uh, that has been done in the Hopi and in several people like Benjamin Wharf. There are a lot of interesting linguists who have been involved in that. But then maybe a little bit about the secret societies or uh, sometimes they're not so secret, but the Heoka sacred clown society or contrarians. I mean, mm -hmm. David, you're a natural contrarian. I think that might be a fun sort of place to start. And uh, Black Elk Speaks is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, Ishi, I-S-H-I, was a very, very popular book when I was in junior high school. It's about a California Native American man, a survivor, a kind of Robinson Crusoe from his culture. Um, so those two books are, are, are really uh, amongst my favorites. And then Leslie Marmon Silco, who uh, is still very much alive. Uh, I, she came to my college and uh, what a beautiful woman. She so distracted me. I couldn't ask any questions. Her book, Storyteller, remains, I think, a beautiful, beautiful piece. And of course, Joy Harjo is our poet laureate. 
serving again. And um, she's all, not only a, a, a great writer and a saxophone player, uh, she's a lovely woman and a lot of fun. So I think there's a lot more to go on. But I, I, food and, and these sort of secret societies, I think that's a very interesting kind of combination. Very public, very social, mm-hmm. and very private Yep, within a group. Absolutely. Okay, so we will move over to the Patreon side and we will see you over there.